So we just take what are they getting for rents right now in the comparables, and we're underwriting less than that. So there's still all kinds of room, but you do also have contingencies and additional monies, you know, and if that money doesn't get used up, well, then it can go back to the investors at the end. But on a development, it almost all the money gets used up for the most part. That's just kind of how it always works. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Dustin Hendrickson from MailboxMoneyRE.com. Today, we're talking about real estate development in a time of economic disruption, if you will. What we're going through right now with high material price volatility and inflation, plus the difficulty to get labor. I mean, it's folks are having a hard time right now getting construction crews to come to site, right? And that's what we're learning about today from Dustin. He's been successful through the pandemic and the associated recession with real estate development. And today we're learning about how he's dealt with some of those uh, speed bumps in the economic road, if you will, what he looks for in a deal, what he looks for in a market, and a lot of other information and details around that, how to be successful in real estate development and real estate development investing today, plus exit strategies. So much great stuff in here. Very knowledgeable. And you're going to learn a lot today. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you're interested in learning more and applying to join our Passive Investor Club for access to passive commercial real estate investment opportunities, go to investwithtaylor.com. Again, that's investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. That's what it's all about here. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy, Strategy Show. Hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Appreciate you tuning in once again. Today, our guest is Dustin Hendrickson from MailboxMoneyRE.com. Today, we're learning about real estate development in a time of economic disruption, specifically the one we're going through right now with material availability and pricing issues and so much more going on, how to be successful and how he's been successful in the space. Without any further ado, here we go. Dustin, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate you inviting me on and I'm excited to get started talking about how you can make money, not just on Wall Street. <laughs> That's what we're all about here. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background and what you do as an investor, can you give us an intro and tell us what you're up to? My name is Dustin Hendrickson. I'm the founder of Mailbox Money, and we buy multifamily properties, and we buy them primarily in the Southeast and the Midwest because it's we buy in landlord-friendly areas, tax-friendly areas, all that stuff. And now you're starting to see a little bit more of that impact happening on these other areas that aren't so friendly. The values aren't quite the same. We're getting a lot of appreciation in these other areas. So I invest in all those areas. And then I also do some development too, because I feel like right now that's a good time to develop with the acquisition price being constantly compressed. Yeah. So, I mean, we do, we do absolutely have acquisition prices, costs going up, right. And, and prices going up. But one of the things I I've really wondered about here, especially for developers is, you know, all these supply chain disruption issues. You know, there's so many uh, ships sitting off the coast of California that can't get 
unloaded and, you know, all those things and, and how people are really still able to continue developing when they're not able to get, you know, basic materials that are necessary for building. What's been your experience there? Well, I'm not in a heavily, heavily populated area. So I think we have more access to materials than say on a, a densely populated stuff sells out faster, just like, you know, restaurants are busier, all that stuff. We have a little bit bigger infrastructure. We have more room, more area. And that just tends to, to bode well for development so we can get product. So we still can get product. I've been tracking people's development progress and a guy that he's almost got a fourplex fully constructed in three months. And that's the same time it would have taken a year ago or two years ago. So it's stuff is still happening and can be done. Uh, we are combating that by ordering, you know, up to a year in advance. Like we just ordered a bulldog HVAC system. It comes from Canada. So it's a 52 week lead time. So we ordered that for the blue that we're going to be starting here, starting moving dirt shortly. We're actually moving boarding the HVAC before we even move dirt. That's we've never done that before. So we're just doing things like that. We're pre-ordering. You got to be able to accept different parts. So, Hey, this part's not going to work. We're not willing to just wait on it if it's out of stock anymore. So then, yeah, we take it from there and order early often and get ourselves to do the same thing and build in more uh, interest to, to, to store that material because we don't want to ever be the bottleneck. We don't want to be waiting. And these projects take up to two years, three years to develop and build so we can do that kind of stuff. And we can even, you know, it take, it's a little more risky to pre-buy, but it's in this environment, it's probably better. So, and you can keep doing that. You can keep ordering, you know, farther and farther out. And that's probably what's going to happen with the labor shortage and whatnot. But then that also means that every time you develop now, it's even worth more because it's going to be that much harder to develop in the future. And you're building the product that the people want now. But even with acquisition prices going down, I still think it's a good investment. I just think that if you're capable of being a developer, you should develop right now because you can develop at a six cap still and stuff's worth about a three or a four cap. Mm, so there's really two components here when it comes to getting being able to get stuff, right? It's how long is it going to take if it's available? And then what's it going to cost? You know, we saw lumber prices just completely, you know, explode. And then they started to come back down. I don't know about like HVAC systems, but really the story of the day is inflation. Materials prices are, are going up. It's all going up. How are you, how are you dealing with that? Especially when you, you, I'm sure when you go into development, you like make material cost assumptions. So how do you kind of deal with that, you know, in the middle of the game? Well, the rent prices actually rise right along with it as well. So now you have to maybe find some differentiators on maybe some more reasons to why you could charge more rent for your place and you got to get your income up. Costs go up. Well, how are you going to elevate your income? You know, mm -hmm. so you just got to make sure the income is rising right along with all the other materials. And then you also have to realize it's a kind of have to look down the road a little bit too and be like, yeah, this hurts right now, but is it still probably worth it? This million dollar overruns probably still worth it. We still, it's a really good deal still because same as like when you first started, right? You're at a building at say a five or a six camp. Well, that was good then. And now all of a sudden the market's compressed. You have this, you know, similar numbers, but now it's worth way more. You know, now your material costs are going up. So that's eating some of that value, but then rents are also going up. So you just constantly are re-underwriting and making sure that every step of the way you can still make this project work. If it becomes not viable at a certain point, then you have a really huge decision. To okay. So it still remains viable at a, you know, at a, at a final valuation aspect, but like you said about you have a million dollar overrun, how do you stay adequately capitalized so that, okay, we're not quite built yet. We need this, you know, more amount of money to deal with these 
higher material prices or higher labor costs or anything like that. And then, you know, the midst of a deal, how do you handle those disruptions? Uh, you just have to pivot, figure it out and just re-underwrite it to make sure it makes sense. So then when it does happen, as long as you can justify it to keep going forward, you know, and then you bring everything up to date, right? So you could have been working on this deal forever. And now your financing is due and now all the materials changed. Well, it's good to get them in now because now you got to, now it affects the financing. So let's get the most up-to-date numbers we have here. And if you can see some more inflation come in the future, well, then we'll also pad these numbers a little bit more. So now pre-deals over here, you've raised some money, you've done some things and this it's over, you know, it's inflated a little bit, but a lot of other things have inflated, but it still makes sense. So now you just update these numbers to here. And then when all the final numbers come out, then you update the investors and you show them where the return is going to be at and what other advances have been made. Cause this thing is fluid all the time and extremely fluid right now. But for everything that goes up, there's something else that goes up equally with it. So it justifies it. And the rents have been skyrocketing. Occupancy also is almost at 100%. So our pro forma is at 90 to 95 and the occupancy is at 100. So that's a, you know, there's a lot of differences. Plus the rates were lower. So we got better rates. So there's a lot of things, right? We had an under a cap rate at like 4.5 written on one project. Well, by the time we went to secure financing, it was down to a 3.24. And that's a massive difference on a $15 million note. So we, there's all kinds of differences you can find. You have to make sure the project's viable, but there's a lot of developers that get skittish and they'll back out. But then when you do that, then you, you have a window of opportunity that you could miss. And so, I don't know. It's kind of like once you're committed, you're committed, you're so far down, you just have to figure out how to make it keep going. <laughs> and sometimes that also involves reducing, say, fees and increasing ownership. You know, well, it didn't go as good as we thought here. Well, we'll just take more of the upside. But then if that upside doesn't happen as a developer, sometimes you just, you know, you don't make quite as much money. But that can happen. You just, whatever time you're building it. That's why you have to always constantly build. You never know what you might find. This could be our best deal of what actually ever because of when we're building it and the valuation that it will be coming in at. So I do wonder about how you stay disciplined in your underwriting and not say, you know, convince yourself or trick yourself into doing a deal because, you know, we're all, how, how do you keep from getting too excited and say, well, so you'd have, you also bring the property manager into that. They need to evaluate it. And they're the ones that actually have to go get a rent. So they're way more pessimistic on the numbers than I am. <laughs> so I also know though, that the property manager doesn't know what they're actually even going to rent. And I know what they're going to rent. And I know it's much better than what they think it's going to be because they've never seen anything like this. And there's a lot of differentiators. So I know that we're going to get more rent because I've had the same thing happen to me in the past. The PM and the bank thinks you can get this much. And I say, no, we're going to get this much. And then we end up getting what I say we're going to get. We do a lot of creative stuff on raising the income and making the rent still appear to be lower. You know, with rubs and all those other different fees you could charge, we charge for Wi-Fi and parking and everything. So at the end of the day, it kind of, you know, the price rises up. We get more income that way as well. And so we don't underwrite a lot of that stuff either because, you know, the PM's like, well, we don't want to underwrite it. So they don't underwrite it. But then we implement it later. And, you know, we're able to increase the income that way as well. So I know whatever the PM is, is super conservative compared to what we normally get. So, so I think one of the things that we've seen a lot of folks over the years you know, underwrite rubs and, and those utility bill backs or, or maybe parking Wi-Fi, things like that. And, and maybe you do, maybe you don't include it in your underwriting, but I guess, how do you know that you, know, you still want to have that in your back pocket? How do you evaluate in your mind if that's going to be a realistic thing to do in a particular market? How do you 
uh, evaluate. Oh, I, I mean, you basically have to prove it. I don't think you can underwrite it until you've already proven it. So we've proven the parking. Uh, there's some places downtown that are getting $100 a month per parking spot. Wow. So, yeah, we don't have that much. I think we have half of that. And then we also have, we only have a small percentage of the parking allotted for, maybe 50%. And we know it's going to be full. And we've rented parking spots. We've done all these things before, so we know they're going to work. And then we just look at what they're getting for rent. This thing's not even going to be developed for another year and a half where we're getting our rent. So there's also going to be increases there. We don't really underwrite any of that. So we just take what are they getting for rents right now in the comparables, and we're underwriting less than that. So there's still all kinds of room, but you do also have contingencies and additional monies, you know, and if that money doesn't get used up, well, then it can go back to the investors at the end. But on a development, it almost all the money gets used up for the most part. That's just kind of how it always works. But in development, though, five years down the road, you've got a 100-year asset, and it's still super, super popular. There's no deferred maintenance yet. You know, it's it's just it's a different type of investment. It's a better overall investment for long term. So if you need to park some money for a while, it's really good to do an A-class development, in my opinion, because you get a lot of value when you stabilize it. So I think that gets to the the next question of the exit strategy. Are you, are you developing to sell to another person or are you refinancing and holding or what's the plan? Well, we're not developing to sell to another person, but we have that option if need be. So we have a lot of exit strategies. We could just build the thing and sell it. We could pre-sell it even before it's done if need be. There's a lot of people that would purchase this asset. We can also refinance right away and try to refinance a portion of money back and then hold it. We could keep it for the entire term and then refinance all the money back and then some and then get long-term agency debt and hold it for a, a long time. But we just see how how efficiently and how good does it operate. And if it's one of those home run deals, then we keep, in my opinion, you should try to keep it long-term and lock it into a some HUD debt that's in the twos, you know? That's crazy. I can't believe the interest rates that they're <laughs> they're giving right now, you know, especially in a yeah. historical context, it's it's nothing. We readjusted our whole portfolio. I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars we saved because we basically went from 5% to 4% overnight during the COVID and we saved. So and certain banks were worried about like runs. So they would just refinance with no fees even. Some banks would just give us the rate. They wouldn't even charge us anything. Wow. They just give us the new rate. So we rebalanced our entire portfolio, saved so much money and interest. It's ridiculous. And it's way lower than when we did that. So nice. Well, I think the biggest thing we haven't like touched on when evaluating a, a real estate development is really the biggest thing I think in, in real estate investing in general is the market and what you look for when you're picking a place to an area to develop a, a property. And so you tell us about how you pick a market and then how you kind of whittle that down to pick the you know exact area where you're going to develop a new piece of property. So I pick a market by first off, just geographically, and it seems like the Southeast and the Midwest are the best markets now. Florida, Atlanta, South. I haven't done any deals in South or North Carolina and Tennessee, but those are all supposedly really good markets as well. But that, that whole strip is pretty friendly. Heard Alabama is really good, actually. People should look more into Alabama because the cap rates aren't quite as compressed and the cash flow is still high. That's one of the, and the insurance is low. There's a lot of reasons why Alabama is good to invest in. Haven't invested there. We've looked at it. And then Texas, but I feel like Texas is pretty expensive. I don't know. I think I can get better cash rates and stuff elsewhere. And I feel like there could be decent growth as well. And there's less competition. There's just so much competition in Dallas. It's crazy how much people, how many people are there trying to buy deals. So 
you're going to compete with some sort of syndicator more than likely on deals there because of the ecosystem. So I don't really do much there, but, and then I really like Phoenix. One of my favorite operators is in Phoenix and that market is just on fire. So those markets I like, but then niche developing, you know, do I know a general contractor in this area that we can partner with? Cause that's the most important piece. And then also do you have a property manager that you can usually find a property manager anywhere, but a GC that wants ownership or that you, you know, cause you usually have to get a, a GC. That's not the most professional best GC unless you're building a skyscraper. Otherwise they'll take most of the profit and then you it will, won't be feasible. So you have to get like an up and coming, someone that wants to be part owner and that's really responsible, you know, but, you don't really know. You have to you have to figure them out. You can, I mean, it takes a lot of relationship building to trust someone to come on your on your team like that. But then finding the actual area comes down to how awesome is the area, how desirable is the area. I want like the most desirable area because I feel like expensive land is underpriced compared to cheap land because no one really wants to be in the at the cheap land, and that's the only places. That's the only time I've ever lost money in real estate is by buying poor locations. That's the only time. <laughs> So I feel like the top of the market per square foot is like where it's like where you should go on the land. You should get the absolute best piece of land because you'll immediately build customers. You won't have like a vacancy issue. You'll immediately be full of people because of the location. And then I guess you got to have good ma- property management too after the GC. But for the most part, location is everything. Nice. It's cliche, but it's true. It's interesting to hear that you want to go for for the nicest piece of land. I suppose it makes sense, but guess how do you avoid you know pricing yourself out of doing a deal i mean you're going to do all the analysis so you know what you price you need but i guess how do you well avoid the market you know hysteria i suppose you have to be able to increase density the land might be too expensive if you're going to try and do a b class garden style so if you can't do a mid rise on it you know that land might be too expensive so go get the best piece of b class land you can find for your b class right so if you're going to do oceanfront it has to be high rise nowadays mid rise doesn't even work right you go a little bit back you know the downtown area that serves it, it's going to have to be mid rise and then you go and land a little bit you got the b class so just get the best land and i say the best land is where the people want to be where the restaurants coffee shops is it close to nature? Is it super secluded, private, all that stuff, and still walkable? Because if you can somehow have a nature, something that's real natural, a natural setting close to like the really nice shopping district, it's going to be awesome because it's walkable and it's peaceful, secluded, and it's probably, you know, pretty expendy land in an area like that, but highly desirable. I don't know. Even when you build something, the per square foot price, the fluctuations just aren't that big going from like workforce to B class, like the per square foot building price, you'd be surprised how little it is. You know, it's all in the actual infrastructure and how tightly they pack it and how much, how efficient they can build it in. But the actual building per square foot is not that much lower. Hmm. Interesting. So I do wonder about the general contractor and how you keep them from, how you keep them in line or how you can set yourself up to have success with that because, it, you know, Anytime you're you're giving power away to someone else, there's there's a risk there. You know, I had a bad experience with a property manager who had too much power very early on yep. in my investing career. So I'm always looking out for that potential risk angle of like, how do I avoid giving this third party, you know, too much control? I would say the same way an asset manager manages a property manager. At first, 
you don't just let the property manager go doing whatever they want to do. You they you question everything. They come back to you, you build a rapport, and all of a sudden they un, they know how you like to run things. And now you only have to look at the P and L and say, hey, what's going on here and here. First, you don't have to have a meeting or anything, right? So once they know what's going on and how you like to do things, you can give them more power. But I would say in a GC, you want to be involved in all the decisions at first. You want to make sure that everything is super transparent. You want to make sure that the budget's the budget. And if there's anything that deviates from that budget, you're there to, you know, as a solution, you know, because I have contacts too, like, hey, let's reach out to this guy. Let's reach out to this guy. What other thing can we do? Can we remove something? Add something else? Can we swap something out that's cheaper? Can we, what, where can we save? You know, what can we do? So that would be, that'd be how some things are just out of your control. Like you underground stuff, right? You're digging and you hit something. Well, no one ever knew that anything was down there. And, you know, now you got this big mess that you're dealing with. Got to do maybe some stupid survey of some sort that requires a lot of time because it's through the government, whatever, right? So you got a six month <laughs> delay, right? Immediately. I've never had, never had it happen, but it's something that, something that can happen. And so it's completely uncontrollable. Now what? Well, you got to figure it out. So, I mean, there's just a lot of reasons why projects get delayed. And a lot of it has to do with the underground stuff. A lot of it has to do with zoning. Anytime you have to rely on the government, those delays, can, they, I mean, they can take a lot of your time because it's one month meetings, right? You get a meeting this month, then you get a meeting next month. Then if they do approve it, well, then it needs another month to sit on this paper and on the, you know, it has to be announced. Then they can approve it the next month. And then, well, two weeks to, you know, then, the, you know, it takes months and months to make decisions. So I was going to say, uh, it sounds like that had happened, hitting something underground had happened to you, but you said, no, no. you probably know some folks that's happened to, I mean, what comes to mind to me is like, you know, utilities that maybe were mismarked or something like that. I guess there are probably other things that could be hit underground though. Yeah. We've never had a massive holdup. The worst holdup that we've ever had is this, the city of Brookings was changing out the power going into this other building. It's downtown, so it's super complicated. So, And right before this, they're like, yeah, we'll change all the transformers out and do this maintenance. So they go in there right away, and this dude blows up a transformer <laughs> immediately and sets them back like two weeks. It was already the tightest timeline ever. So they barely got it done like with one day to spare or something. People were moving. It was so close. It was ridiculous. Uh, so that was my worst like holdup that I had no power over. Only power I could do is call and just nicely beg every day and see how soon they were going to be there to do this that was all i could do it was it was fairly stressful but it got done the persistence paid off and it did get done but i've never nothing crazy but yeah that was a lot of electrical work had to be done because we're building over top of it came in through aerial was airily come airily coming in and then we had to the building was in the way so we removed a bunch of stuff but then it had this big old ugly thing on the side so it was in the stairway for the longest time. So we we're still able to construct, but while we were constructing, they just never came and did the power. I don't know. I don't know why. So they waited till like the last day to come do it. Wow. But it sounds like it, it worked out at the end. Yeah, it always does. That's the thing. It always works out. Now I look at that building and I was like, that building has been occupied now for a year and a half, roughly for the top, the units, the 20 units we added. And I look at that and I'm like, this is like a two and a half, $3 million project. And it would cost us another million dollars if we did it today. Wow. And it's an amazing amount of appreciation just like that. Wow. Well, I'm glad it's worked out right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. 
and the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called Ground Floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Dustin, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? A piece of farmland. I bought this piece of farmland about 40, 40 grand down, roughly flipped it, made 300 grand. And I 1031 that 300 grand into an apartment downtown that I still have to this day. Nice. So it was awesome. Nice. Sounds like that worked out. That was all like six months, I think. I think we did it at like six foot. And that was when I was a really small fish. So it was a little different. It was a little bit different. It was massive to me. The idea was massive to me back then. Well, on a percentage basis, that's still massive. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, nice. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? A piece of farmland. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, so now the one piece of farmland I bought was in prime location. And I don't know why I bought it. It shouldn't have been for sale. But somehow I was able to buy it. The second farmland was went to auction. Nobody bid on it for a bunch of reasons. And... I didn't. I just thought it was a beautiful piece. It was over twelve hundred some acres, but we we were able to get it in a way that it, we didn't put that money down. But we still ended up losing three hundred thousand on the deal because the farm, the mar- the commodity market tanked right after we bought it. If we would have had it now, we would be totally fine. But we only had a three year contract. That's all they would give us. So we still took it. Ended up losing three hundred grand because the market Oof. dove. But that thing could have been a multi million dollar deal. So it was highly risky. But the the main lesson I learned was that it was horrible location. There's not enough farmers near it. So the farther west you go, the less farmers there are. And now all of a sudden, there's no one fighting over this land. These farmers don't have quite, they're not as high of an income as the farmers to the east. The soil's not as good. It's just not as good a land. So not as good a land. Shouldn't have bought it. Shave it. You know, if it was over on the east side of the state, I'd have been fine. I wouldn't have lost any money. I would have been able to get bail out with, without losing. Ouch. Well, lesson learned, I suppose. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important lesson? Okay. The most important lesson is probably, I mean, I have so many good lessons, but I would say the better that your mood is, the more positive that you can be, the more that you can like increase other people's consciousness around you, the more you can lift people's spirits around you, the more successful you will be, no question. 
So I never, I mean, I should say never because I was silly, stupid and the emotions will take <laughs> over and I'll send an email and I'm pissed. Sure. You should never do any business when you're upset. You should never communicate when you're upset. Whatever's bugging you, you're going to just unload that on these people and they're going to think that you're ridiculous. And then when you go back and look at what you've done, you also think you're ridiculous. So I don't try to do any type of business related transactions or communication or I mean, I'm okay to brainstorm and do some stuff, but usually I don't even work if I'm in a bad mood. If I'm in a bad mood, I got to figure out why I'm not why I'm in a bad mood and get back to a good mood because I feel like your positivity directly impacts your paycheck 100%. Nice, nice. I appreciate that. Dustin, thank you for joining us and teaching us about a few or many of the lessons that you've learned in real estate development, especially recently when it comes to all of this uh, material and volatility and, and labor availability issues and all those big things. If folks want to reach out, if they want to track you down, they want to find you on the internet or what have you, where can they find you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Dustin with an E, Dustin Hendrickson. That's where I do most of my uh, interacting with the world, I guess. And then mailboxmoneyre.com. Nice, nice. Love that mailbox money. Great brand. So uh, good call on that. Well, thank you for tuning in to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look to show up, hit the subscribe button, and you can catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I want to thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks, Taylor.